Hey guys, I'm Andrew Krasny, and you're listening to Brothers on Tennis. Yo, 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 what's up everybody? This is your boy Isaac. And this is your boy Bryce. And we are Brothers on Tennis. And folks, we have got such a good one for you today. We are going to do an interview with someone that I have just known for a very, very long time through one of the actual tennis tournaments. And although I, I didn't understand a lot about his backstory, I met him a long time ago, and he's just a great guy and a great person to, to learn about. Um, it is Andrew Krasny. He is one of the pre announcers on the WTA and ATP Tour. But outside of that, I have found out that Andrew has been clowning in his background. <laughs> yeah. He's got a whole bunch of stuff going on, folks, that you will most definitely be interested in. Bryce, talk to me about your experience as far as what you've learned about Mr. Andrew Krasny. Well, very much like you, I just knew Andrew from his announcing days with the Tennis Channel, which those days still are today, oh, right? Yeah, today. That's right. <laughs> but I only knew him in that capacity, and then when I, I first saw him in an interview, uh, I think with Chanda Rubin and Zena Garrison earlier yes. this year, yes. and really found out that he had this huge Hollywood background as a television producer, um, even you know as a writer for Joan uh, Rivers back in the day. Uh, but the thing that I loved that I found in his uh, resume was that he was the producer for the Wayne Brady Show. What? And folks, if we've not talked about it before, <laughs> we are huge fans of Wayne Brady. Yes, uh, the modern day Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> um, just absolutely love that guy. So. I'm going to be asking him a little bit about uh, that as well. Oh, but, yeah. So let's just go ahead and get this party started. Let's do it. Andrew, welcome to Brothers on Tennis. Guys, thanks for having me on. Uh, it means a great deal to be invited on a show like yours, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you, really. It's, uh, it's a beautiful Sunday. We're in the middle of this crazy pandemic, and yes. I'm waking up every day staying as optimistic as possible and remembering advice that I got from Joan Rivers many, many years ago. And that's no matter how bad the clouds are, no matter how bad the storm is, the sun's going to come back out. Yes. And, and, and you know what, Andrew? And we, okay, so we're going to get deep early. And like I said, and I, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable, but I just want you to share just where you are at and where your thoughts are just in regards to this year with everything that has happened with what, you know, with what you mentioned on Game Set Chat with Chanda and Zena, whom we both love, talking about the social justice, talking about um, all of the things that have happening, been happening around the world, talking about, the, you know, the United States and what we've been going through, you know, with the recent election and just everything. I'm curious to just kind of talk about yeah, especially and with COVID, of course. I mean, that's just that's you know dominating everything. Give just kind of give us your thoughts on on this year and on overall just everything that has been going on. Where where are you at, my friend? Well, first of all, guys, you know I always have that decision to make. Do I do I come out funny? Do I come out serious? And and uh, I look at life in a in a sarcastic way, which gets me through and and has gotten me through a lot of tough times. So first, I want to put it out there that that Chanda, Zena, and I are involved in, in a, lo a love triangle. And I want to, <laughs> you know, it's something that I don't know if I really want to talk about publicly, but I guess I just did. And they're, they're, my, they're my lovers, okay? So don't, don't tell them, because they don't know. <laughs> I love it. Okay, but, uh, quiet. Well, listen, yeah. guys, we're going we're gonna to go back and forth a million times about uh, with things that are funny and, of course, things that, that are incredibly serious and incredibly painful. And what we've all, uh, when I say we've all, when I, I don't mean to be, to separate anybody or be any kind of an elitist anyway, but when I say we, I think I'm talking about those of us who get it as opposed to those of us who don't. And uh, what I mean by that is, you know, I work with a lot of people who have different political views and I have to remain as neutral as I possibly can, but there's certain things that I just, have to talk about uh, when mm -hmm. I'm asked. So mm -hmm. I say, when I say what this last year has been, and, and it's just been a divisive year, and I think it's uh, shown all of us that uh, we can't just sit back anymore and let someone else uh, fly our airplane, that uh, we got to take more uh, uh, of an active role in steering the way that, 
that plane has flown. And uh, I'm proud to say that this year has taught me to be more active, to be more educated, and to not really hold back and, and express my opinion on on where I think the direction is that we need to go. So yeah. if, if that's not as neutral and politically correct sounding, <laughs> I don't know. What to say. But you know what, Andrew? What I appreciate though is the we. And and I think that that's what we all need to focus in on. It is is it is about the we. It is not about the the separatism and the divisiveness that you mentioned. It is about the collective we and how we all can do better by one another to move forward. And that includes just the world. It includes the tennis community. It 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 includes everything. And so I love the fact that you are using the term we because to me it's so appropriate. Um, well, so thank you, you, for that. you know, you guys, I think it was a few weeks ago. I, I spent a lot of time down in the desert area of Palm Springs and Indian Wells and La Quinta. And there's there's a, a, a woman. I'm not going to give her any attention because she doesn't deserve any. So I'm not going <laughs> to tell you exactly where she is or what she does. But there is okay. somebody who put a display in their window of a bunch of T-shirts that said White Lives Matter. And, mm. and I lost my shit. And I and I was talking to some friends of mine who have some retail stores near her. And one of these kids who's in his thirties, I say kids, cause I'm old. I'm in my fifties now. And one of these kids said, you know, she's out of her mind. She doesn't understand. And doesn't she understand that all lives matter? And, and it was my first real opportunity to take some information that I had learned from somebody and to educate a, a peer of mine. And I said, no, 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 I gotta tell you something. It's not about, all lives matter right now. I said, I'm not going to say your life doesn't matter, I said to him, but I said, it really is about Black Lives Matter right now. And I'm going to give you, give you a little bit of an analogy or a metaphor, I said to him. I said, let's say that you're, and I'm sure you guys have heard this, and I know your listeners are very astute, but I said to him, your, your next door neighbor's house is on fire. Mm-hmm. And you run outside your front door and you see a fire engine and a hook and ladder and a battalion chief and a bunch of guys with hoses and they're putting out your neighbor's house and you look at them and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you guys, what about my house? And one of the firemen turns around and looks at him and says, bitch, your house isn't on fire. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. Right? You know what I mean? So don't tell me right now that all lives matter when, when it really is right now, at least what we've seen in the last what's really come to fruition in the last year, that it is Black Lives Matter. And I've learned an incredible, incredible amount uh, in the last year. And I, and I want to give a big credit to Chanda and Zena yeah. uh, and, my, and my dear friend, Dolores Robinson, who lives about 100 yards away from me. Dolores Robinson is Holly Robinson's mom. And uh, she, w- she was my first, one of my first bosses back in the 80s. I worked for Dolores and she's one of my best friends to this day. And she's really educated and taught me a lot about what's going on. And I'm learning every day, guys. And I'm not perfect in any way. And but I'm learning a lot. And uh, and I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say and, and what I can take away from participating in this interview today. Yeah, well, I, I tell you what, Andrew, it's 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 a learning process across the board. I mean, I think that everyone is trying to to come to the table with a little bit more self awareness and understanding where they are, at least, I, well, I should say, some people are. <laughs> Others, right. I mean, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, get out there and get crazy, but some folks are really taking the lazy route and they're, you know, they're not doing, you know, what, what needs to be done, which is you, you gotta do work. I mean, if you're gonna make progress, I mean, you've gotta do work and you have to understand, you know, that there is a little bit of effort required. And, and I think that some people are really just sort of taking the lazy route. They're just wanting to be, you know, hey, this is I, this is my comfortable space. I want to stay in my comfortable space and to make progress, especially on something like social justice, uh, social injustice. Excuse me. You you have to be uncomfortable. It's not a comfortable discussion that you can you can have. So right, and um, you have, yeah. and in a way, we have to. We can't be hypocritical. We can't completely judge those kind of people because you know, by nature, a lot of human beings don't like change. Right. Right. Uh, we, we, we've become complacent and to be more receptive or to understand someone else's plight or to go to that uncomfortable place represents change. And some people are just not capable of changing. So instead of, you know, what I do is instead of focusing so much on those people that can't change, uh, I'm not going to change them. And I'm going to start focusing on the people in my life 
who I know are willing to change. And that's where I choose to, to direct my, uh, my energy. And, and that's who I've really learned to spend a lot of time with over this last year. You know, the pandemic has brought a lot of good to, to my life, at least. I've, I've made some friends who I would have never met and gotten close with if we weren't sheltering. And uh, it's really been a, an eye-opening experience for me. And, and I know it's going to be for the next few months, at least, that we're going to have to continue to hunker down and shelter. And I'm choosing to do the most that I can with this time because, God willing, we're not going to have this kind of time in the near future, right? Where we, That's right. We're going, to get, we're going to get back on that wheel inside the habit trail, and we're going to start chugging along and 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 pooping in our own cages again and we're gonna be, <laughs> you know what i mean and we're gonna be like oh, yeah. and we're gonna start getting on the habit trail and running up and down like the hamster and and now we're gonna really take like wait a minute this is a chance to be out of our routine to be out of that habit trail and and learning about the human condition and what our brothers and sisters uh their struggles are and what they've been through and get educated and, and that's one thing that that I really want to say thank you to Chanda and Zena for inviting me on that that talk that we had a few months ago was just eye-opening to me. It was very, very emotional. It took me a few days just to even to be able to talk about it. I will tell you guys that I would say a couple of years ago, this was long before we got into this big giant discussion, right? But a couple of years ago, I was in Memphis and there was a tennis tournament there that was the last few years of a tennis tournament Mm -hmm. And I had a I had a day off, and one thing that I don't generally do is go off on my own in foreign cities. Uh, I usually go with somebody, but this day I chose to go by myself, and I went to the the Museum of Tolerance, uh, or the Civil Rights Museum rather. This we have the Museum of Tolerances in L.A. This was the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, where you have an opportunity to stand in the very parking lot at the Lorena Motel. And you have an opportunity to go into the museum that's connected to the back of the facade of the Lorena Hotel. Mm -hmm. And that's, that single-handedly was the most moving and powerful day of, of my life, of beginning to be at one speck of sand in the hourglass of understanding uh, the civil rights movement and what's occurred in my lifetime. And uh, I couldn't talk about that for two weeks without uh, breaking down. It was pretty intense. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I, I think in terms of what you both have said, the key word for me is awareness, yep. because I totally agree. You can't control whether people change or not. But what you can do is you can help influence people in terms of what they are aware of and right. that right. there may be a need to change or not. And, and you know, Andrew, um, that experience you just spoke about with the Civil Rights uh, Museum, I had the exact same experience when I was in D.C. and I went to the National Holocaust mm. Museum. And I would say before visiting there, I kind of in general knew, yeah. you know, about that whole um, experience. But it wasn't until I really went through there and, 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 and got a chance to see graphically, you know, what happened yeah. uh, when you walked through the gas chamber. Um, and I was in tears at at the end and you know that's just an example of how you know right now we're talking about people looking at the plight of african americans here was an african american looking at right. you know the history of another type of right. people right. and um and kind of tying this to tennis a little bit that's why my fandom of naomi osaka has just absolutely mm -hmm. grown uh this year mm -hmm. because um she kind of threw image to the wind, caution to the wind, uh, and said, look, this is something that I believe in, something that is important to me, and I'm going to ride this on my back. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I thought it was just her winning the U.S. Open while she was making that kind of a statement, which had to add additional yes. pressure, yes. you know, for her. She is my now post William sisters, <laughs> uh, person that I'm gonna ride or die, for, you right, know. Right. Yeah. She's no, a I... special. She's a special kid. And you know, with Naomi Osaka, I had a really rough beginning with Naomi. So now, go back about seven or eight years, and Naomi Osaka won her first tour level match in Stanford at the Bank of the West Classic. She had just beaten Sam Stozer 
the year after Sam won the U.S. Open. So we're probably looking at 2012 or 13 at the time. And she had never won a match on the tour level. And she just won the match and she went and sat down. And I, you know, being the obnoxious guy that I am, I run out <laughs> on the court and I'm like, like, no, no, Naomi, this isn't how you do it. <laughs> and she looked at me like, who the F or who is this guy? And I, I said, no, you got it when you win, you got to go out and you got to wave to everybody and you got to really be proud because you just pulled off an amazing feat. So let's try this one more time. So I go, ladies and gentlemen, Naomi Osaka, and she stands up and she waves at everybody. And then the next day, 24 hours later, we're at a luncheon with 500 women who have all been drinking. And, <laughs> and, I, and the guest is Naomi Osaka and I have to interview her. And I walk up to her with my microphone. I'm like, Naomi, welcome to the women's luncheon. I forgot what it was, but it was a women's luncheon. And she looks right at me and puts her mouth to the microphone. And she says, I don't like you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, you're kidding. Uh -oh. We had a we had a rough start. And then Naomi Osaka goes on a few years later to win the Indian Wells tournament, BNP Paribas Open, which is tennis paradise. And she wins and she doesn't give a great acceptance speech. And so I was really on the fence of of do I like Naomi? Do I not? Do you know what she like? We don't really like each other. We got off on the wrong foot. And then flash to a you know a couple of years ago when she beats Coco Goff and Coco Goff goes and sits down and she's dejected. And then Naomi goes and gets her. You guys saw the whole thing. She right, brings yeah. Coco Goff up to the net. I didn't, I had tears running down my cheeks. And it was at that moment that I realized that I was just a little impatient, probably should have waited a little longer for this kid who's been in a bubble to burst through that bubble and show her true colors. And then it's just been a snowball ever since that moment. And I am team Osaka. I'm a huge fan. She doesn't like, she still doesn't like me, but I really do. <laughs> uh, I I'm believe a, that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think she's got some love for you. She just may uh, not show it. You, she, <laughs> she does. I, I, I'm joking with you. She, I, I really am a huge fan. I was with her in uh, Shenzhen, China last year, and, and we had a few minutes by ourselves on a long walk, and I just told her how proud I was of her, and she uh, was genuinely receptive to our conversation, and she's a good kid. And, and with what she did this year with, with the different names on the masks that she was wearing at the U.S. Open. And, you know, I was there for all of that. And I, I, a lot of those matches uh, were on, on Arthur Ashe and my courts, Louis Armstrong. So I didn't get her for a lot of the post-match interviews, but I had her for Cincinnati. I had her for the trophy presentation in, in Cincinnati, and, which we had in New York, as you know. And uh, she's a special kid. So that's my little diversion when you brought up Naomi Osaka. I'm a huge fan. I'm very proud of her. Love it. As, as are we. I mean, it, she's just been phenomenal. And uh, Andrew, one, one thing I don't want our listeners to miss out on, though, is your background. Because, okay. again, you've got, you've got a whole bunch of stuff going on that, that these people need to hear about. Uh, talk to us just about the whole Joan Rivers piece and just the background. Give, give us some, give us, shed some light as to how all of that came about. I mean, it's okay. incredible. Well, in a nutshell, and I'll try it because it's kind of a long story, but in a nutshell, I was uh, in high school back in the 80s. I, I grew up in Los Angeles. And uh, a friend of mine's dad was the producer of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And back in the 80s, Joan Rivers, who was at the height of her career, was Johnny's sole uh, guest host. When he took a week off, Joan would fill in. And the numbers and the ratings were actually, at one point, a little bit better when Joan filled in for Johnny because he was on there for 20 years. Joan filled in here and there. And a friend of mine's dad produced The Tonight Show. And I was 17 years old. He called me and said... Uh, do you want to go on a Friday night with me? We're going to go see Joan Rivers is hosting The Tonight Show. Do you want to come with me? And I was a huge fan, 17 years old, and we go to watch The Tonight Show being taped. And the next thing I know, we're in Joan's dressing room, and she looks at Tom and I and says, I, need, I want someone to keep Melissa company this weekend. We're on our way to Caesars Palace. We, we're getting on a private jet. You guys are coming with us. So that and wasn't the hookup? That was, that, that was, I was 17 years old. I, I was wearing, I was wearing, I don't, I was like in, in nice clothes because Joan was very conservative, believe it or not, behind the scenes. And 
and her husband, Edgar, you had to dress up and wear a suit and tie when you were around Edgar. And I had, all I had was a suit and tie. So she, she says, put your mother on the phone. Joan <laughs> calls my mother and says, this is Joan Rivers. Your son, Andy, is going to Vegas this weekend. If it's okay with you, we'll buy him a bathing suit. We'll buy him some clothes. We'll buy him a toothbrush and I'll have him back to you on Sunday night. Wow. And uh, that was the beginning of a friendship uh, and I, you know, became like another, like a kid to Joan. She never had a son. We connected, we bonded, and it went on to become a, a friendship and then a working relationship for the next 25 years. When I was in college, she asked me to, when she got her own show on Fox, Joan, well, before Joan really made it big, she used to answer all of the fan mail that she got. And when she made it big, she couldn't do it anymore because, you know, before email, it was the U.S. post office, and she would get hundreds and then thousands of letters a week from her fans, and she couldn't answer them anymore. And she and I shared a very similar sense of humor, and she said, I want you to come open my fan mail, and I want you to respond to all of it for me. And uh, I would open a fan letter. So let's say Isaac or you, Bryce, wrote a fan letter to Joan. I would open it, write a note back to you on her stationery with a typewriter, and then leave a stack of those letters next to her bed at night, and she would sign it with her signature. And that's when, I didn't know it at the time, but that's when I really became a writer for Joan because she knew that I could write in her voice. Oh, and then I went on, went on to become a joke writer for her on and off for years and produced with her and did a lot of stuff. But uh, the funny thing that you asked that question, and this ties into Isaac, is that Joan... Uh, encouraged me to become an audience warm-up guy and I warmed up TV show audiences for about seven or eight years of my career and then I hosted a dating show on USA Network and I was wow. working on a radio show with Joan and when I fell in love with the game of tennis and knew that I wanted to work in tennis I was at a tournament at UCLA where I first met Isaac and a guy who was in his 80s was inter interviewing and introducing Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras and I had a friend that worked at the tournament. I said, that guy's in his 80s, and, and I, I think I can do that. And he gave me an opportunity to be a volunteer at that tournament. And Joan knew how much I loved tennis. She gave me a week off every summer for three or four years and paid me to go volunteer at that tournament at UCLA as one of the announcers. And that was the beginning of what be, has become my entire career of hosting, producing, and consulting in, in the field of tennis. And working at Tennis Channel, it, it, it really began the phase of my life where I found my true passion. Wow, and Andrew, so what was, what was that one singular thing that kind of got you introduced to tennis? Was it a player? Was it, I mean, what, what struck that nerve? Because I know what, how it happened for me, because I actually joined uh, up on tennis back in, I think it was 90, 98 or something like that when I kind of started losing weight and that's when I found my boy Bryce and he was playing tennis and so there was a certain thing uh, that happened for me that got me into tennis what was that thing for you that kind of got got your you know got that sparked that fire if you will well on, on from a level of of the game and playing the game and loving it I was as a kid I had two older brothers who were superstar athletes and every team that I was on whether it was soccer football volleyball basketball I never got off the bench, like hmm. literally, you guys. I <laughs> that. I get that. Um, the only time I got off the bench was to take water to another player. Or to <laughs> and in my mid-20s to late 20s, I finally woke up and realized that as an adult that I could control my fate and become maybe possibly more athletic if I focused and was determined. And tennis was the game where I got very addicted and very involved in playing in leagues in, in Los Angeles and just really fell in love with the sport. And around the time of falling in love with the sport and starting to play tournaments, and I'm talking, you know, C-level 3-0, 3-5 tournaments at the time, uh, when I fell in love with the sport was when my career started to take off and I could figure out a way to, to combine them both. And I got very, very lucky to, you know, for John Lansville, my friend who worked at USTA and worked for Bob Kramer at SoCal Tennis, uh, if it wasn't for Bob Kramer giving me that break and allowing me to be one of his announcers, uh, uh, you know, the, but that was the, the, the break where you kind of what told me that I wanted to play tennis. But professionally, my first job that I got outside of that UCLA tournament was down in, in Carson, California, 
Yeah. And uh, I had Venus Williams on a Friday night. It was my first real big, big job in tennis. And Venus had won a match, and we were sold out, about 9,000 people. Isaac was probably there. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, I walked down with my microphone, very timid, but brave as I could be, and interviewed Venus. And I just felt like, you know what? We're three blocks away from where it all started for Venus. And right. I just looked at Venus. I said, Venus, there's 9,000 people here. And I just want to say on behalf of everybody in this stadium, welcome home. And mm -hmm. Venus, I remember her, that. <laughs> her eyes welled up, my eyes welled up, and I think that moment was when I realized this is it, this is the real deal, uh, and then a, the, a couple people saw that happen, I got offered some jobs at other tournaments like Indian Wells and the WTA Finals and Amelia Island, and it was that moment where I think I kind of showed that maybe I got off the right airplane and arrived in the right city, <laughs> and that, that was going to steer me in the right direction and that was a long time ago that was uh, gosh 2003 maybe 2004 yeah. somewhere around there oh yeah and uh and that began a, a whole aspect of my life that i just never imagined possible and uh those are my introductions to tennis where i kind of figured out that that's what i should be doing so andrews i have a question now so as we talked about in the intro i mean you're you're producing uh, shows on television, you're guest hosting on shows on TV. Was this a transition from that to the tennis hosting and announcing, or did you kind of do both for a while? How is it today? Is, is today just tennis, or well, are you still well, doing things in Hollywood? Well, I still do stuff in Hollywood. Not as much, thank God, because, and I consider Tennis Channel us being in Hollywood, right? Our studios are in L.A., and Tennis Channel, my involvement is minimal, but it's still on a regular basis. There's three of us that split the news up and deliver the news uh, court report and that we get uh, distributed on Fox stations and gas stations and, and USA Today and all this stuff. So we, I host the news at Tennis Channel. But uh, the more tennis has become a career for me and, and niched out where the Miami Open, uh, I'm an executive producer and I'm involved with the fan experience at the Miami Open and, and Indian Wells Tournament. I work and consult for Ray Moore uh, and Larry Ellison at that tournament. I'm very much motivated by the fan experience at a tennis tournament. So my producing days of television, where I, I you had said at the top of the show, I didn't produce on the Wayne Brady show. I was a contributor on, on camera with Wayne Brady. And the shows that I produced were uh, Martin Short was my big producing show where we got nominated for an Emmy and, uh, and Lisa Gibbons, I was a producer for her as well, but, and we'll talk about Wayne Brady later, but I don't, uh, I'm the only thing that I still do really that's outside of tennis is I speak on behalf of companies when they want to launch products, they'll pay me to go on the news in the morning shows and talk about their product and their gadget, which I do about three or four times a year. But, uh, I would say that I'm about 98% tennis right now. Oh, okay. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm very lucky, guys. I mean, I love it. And, and I, I speak to college kids a lot about you've got a lot more control of your faith than you think you do. And you got to find out what you love to do and what courses the blood through your veins and what helps you get to sleep at night. And, and what do you wake up thinking about? And there's ways to work in the things that you love to do. You just have to stay committed. You have to believe in yourself. And you, you can't let people tell you no. And, yeah. the they, and, and my attitude is you can keep telling me no, but I'm coming back until you get a restraining order. <laughs> absolutely absolutely and I, I i wanted to just kind of jump back to what you were saying about the whole uh you know when you interviewed venus williams on court because i remember that and i remember those exact words and and that was really uh it, it was a great moment and i'm thinking back to the ucla and i want to make sure not only do we give a shout, shout out to um uh, to bob kramer and the crew there i want to make sure i give a shout out to julie miss julie watt who actually connected us and that was actually how I, I first met you was because I actually got a chance to sing the national anthem. And uh, she she kind of booked me for that because I asked her about it. And she was like, well, can you sing? And I was like, well, I think so. And, and she said, well, and, you know, go at it. And so I sang a little bit for her and, and she was like, OK, we're, we're going. And and yeah, it was really great to, to, to meet you. And I just wanted to say that it 
when I met you, I could tell there was a really genuineness about you. And that's why a lot of this stuff for me is not surprising because I can see why you've been able to, again, get all of these, you know, these, these, these jobs and people, you know, reaching out to you is because of that level of genuineness that, that I feel like I experienced and encountered just with the little or limited uh, interaction that we had on the whole anthem thinking thing. So just wanted, wanted to just kind of point that out and thank you for, again, just, just being the genuine person that you are. Um, that means a lot, and and I appreciate that, Isaac. Your words mean a lot to me. I, I'll tell you the most. You you say something, and of course, I've had two cups of coffee, and I'm going to be all over the place today, guys. But <laughs> my, the most frustrating thing about anthems in tennis is I find you know, and I you know, guys, I'm like on a on an airplane. My life is an airplane, and whenever I see someone or meet somebody, I come across and I want them to be on my vacation and be on my plane, I grab them and I take them with me. So when I met Isaac, I wanted you to come sing the anthem, I think in another venue that I'd been in. I, I don't remember where it was, but it was from UCLA and I either asked you to come to Carson or yes. something like that. But it's uh, the thing that's frustrating about the anthem is that I have found some of the most talented, beautiful singers in the last 20 years and I hate that it's wasted at the beginning because no one's there yet. And it's <laughs> I got Isaac out here on court. There's going to be 9,000 people here in a half an hour, but right now there's only 300. And it's like, wait a minute, maybe we should do the anthem at the end as well. It's just like, or maybe we should teach people how to freaking be on time. You know what I'm oh, saying? There you go. It's like, there you go. <laughs> it's like son of a gun. It's frustrating. But uh, I don't think there's anything more powerful and beautiful than then some, and you can ask Gladys Knight this because Gladys has become a good friend of mine and I try and get her to wherever I'm going to be to hear her beautiful voice. But I don't think anything is better uh, than, than hearing a beautiful voice before you're about to go to a sporting event. So uh, I love it. And that's a great way to say that I met Isaac because Isaac's got a voice that will tear your heart apart. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. Well, you know, this, I'm glad that you said that because this actually transitions into something that I wanted to ask you. You know, something that comes across very clear when you read these articles is that you have a lot of really good relationships with the not just players, right. the top players. And we know that sometimes that can be a little difficult because they're a little more guarded. There's right. a little more insulation yeah. uh, around them at times. Uh, speak on how some of those key relationships have formed and, and even continued over time. Well, it's interesting that you ask that question because I think one day, I don't know who buy the book, but if I ever do want to, if I ever do write a book about my career in tennis is the defining moments where I think I formed bonding relationships with the players. Cause you know, we, you guys, we, we work a lot together, right? We travel around the world together. We we're on court together, but that's just, those are just minutes of time. Right. But there's a lot of behind the scenes where we're in hotel rooms. We're in, in not hotel rooms. I, what I mean is like we're in lobbies, we're having breakfast at hotels together. We're, on airplanes together, we're in rain delays together, we're having lunch, we're having dinner. There's hours and hours and hours where, we're, where all of us are behind the scenes getting ready for those moments that are on court. So you do end up spending time with players that you connect with and with that you bond with. And I, I, I think one day I'd love to write a book about the defining moments of when I think I became friend. I probably really can't do it until I'm done working because I never really want people to know who I'm friends with and who I'm not with, because people may think that I'm biased uh, on who I want to win a match. And I'll tell you now, for the record, <laughs> for the record, I really don't, the only person that I really want to win a tournament from a professional standpoint is somebody who's going to help us bring more fans back the next year. Right. right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's just keeping it real. We want to market our sport. We want to sell tickets. We want to be able to promote our sport. And I just want the, the person to win to be the person who's best for the tournament. Uh, that's the honest truth. But uh, I do have my favorites. I do have players that I feel are, I'm not, they're not my favorite because of their fame. They're my favorite because of the respect that they give me and the way that they treat me when it doesn't matter. Does mm, that make sense? Right. Yes, yeah, it totally. Does. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, earlier in my career, when I was making a few more mistakes than I make now, uh, the players who laughed at me or laughed with me or 
helped me become who I am today and helped me become better at what I do, those are the players that really etch out the, the, the moments in my memory and, and have a place in my heart who I have a true amount of respect for. And I think that, that those players also respect me, that they know that I'm paying attention to their match. They know that I'm understanding who they are. They know that I know about their career and that, that they're safe with me, that I'm going to go out and ask them a question that's going to allow them to communicate in the best light possible, right? I, I don't throw them under a bus. I try my hardest to never go negative. I don't want to come out and ask them anything negative. And I want to prove to them that, that I watched the match and I want to talk about the pivotal moments in that match that allowed them to carve out that win. And I think that they respect that in me. And it's a mutual respect that, that I look back on the last 20 years and feel very privileged. And, you know, that's something that is also very unique about you, somebody from your your industry. You've been very outspoken or about, you know, gaffes and mistakes and, and those type of things. And a lot of times, you know, of course, people in the entertainment industry, they want to shy away from talking about those experiences. But I think it's one of the things that really makes you very relatable. Yes. Uh, and and puts people at ease because you do speak about those things. Yeah, you have to, guys. I mean, listen, failure to me is an F word, and I'm not a big fan of the F word, right? So uh, you can either let failure and mistakes define you, or you can allow them to make you a better person, make you better at what you do. And, you know, fortunately, my the mistakes that I've made in my career while I'm working in tennis, thank God, have been minor. <laughs> I mean, it's not, I don't think it, there's anything been made. I will tell you, that I've made a couple mistakes in introductions where I was new in my career. And I, I remember Serena was playing somebody in Carson and she, the person she was playing had some accomplishments that included a big win over Venus. And <laughs> earlier in my career, I didn't put two and two together that it probably wasn't a good idea to talk <laughs> about this girl beating Venus at Wimbledon when Serena's across the net looking at me like, bitch, really? <laughs> Are you? And she gave me that look and I was like, oh, right? wait a minute. I better learn. Uh -oh. But it made me a better person. And, and by the grace of the powers above, any mistake that I've ever made in a tennis tournament has never resulted in the loss of who I made the mistake about. So uh, if I can't laugh at myself, if we can't laugh at ourselves, <laughs> we're in big trouble, guys. Oh, I'm telling you, Andrew, most definitely. <laughs> I, I, funny thing, and this is one of the things that I kind of stole from uh, your interview with uh, both Chand and Zena. Did, did you give your nephew a spanking for putting that porn, uh, <laughs> that porn announcement on your phone when you were driving Petrova? Oh, my God. <laughs> if your listeners want to know, and this is a true story. So back at Amelia Island, uh, I thought I was really badass because my boss gave me a tournament card to take from the, from the player's lounge up to my hotel, which, honest to God, was maybe a two-and-a-half-minute drive on the property of the hotel. But there was an extra Porsche Cayenne that night. And he said, Andrew, why don't you take the Porsche up to uh, take it home for the night? And uh, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. So I hop into my Cayenne. I'm going through the roundabout driveway, and I see Nadia Petrova and her, her late mother, her mom, may she rest in peace, but she's with her mom waiting for the shuttle. And I pull up and I'm like, then you guys hop in the car. We're staying at the ho same hotel. I'll take you up to your hotel. So Nadia gets in the front seat. Her mom sits in the back seat. My tennis bag is in the back of the car because I thought I was by myself. Right. My tennis bag's in the back of the car. We, Nadia puts her bags in the back of the car. Now we've got four bags in the back of the car and we're driving up to our room. And out of the blue, I hear this uh, music sound that goes like doom, 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 doom. And then suddenly you hear like a woman's voice in ecstasy from a, por from a porno movie. So you hear the back of my car going, oh, yeah, baby. Oh, yeah, give it to me. And I'm like, what? Well, I don't know what that is. And Nadia looks at me and her mother looks at me. And then what I went to realize is that my nephew programmed that ringtone into my phone if he called me. And you guys, I couldn't turn it off. I didn't know what it was coming from. I didn't know what to do. And uh, was clearly the most frightful, embarrassing moment of my life. And Nadia, who's just one of my dear friends ever since that day, uh, will tell you that story in the same way. And she'll 
her face turned as red. She looked like an ingrown toenail. She was so embarrassed. <laughs> oh, yeah. What the look on her face and the look on her mother's face. So yeah, I'm glad that that story resonated with you. Uh, with was that Bryce? Yeah, thank so, you for remembering that. Or Isaac? Yeah, who was it? So that, yeah, it was Isaac. And the reason I remember that, Andrew, because funny enough, during the year-ending championships that used to be hosted out here in LA, yeah, I was the actual drivers in transportation, and I drove uh, Nadia Petrova. She was the one that I got assigned to, so I got oh, an opportunity great. to talk to her and meet her. Such a sweet young lady, and like I said, when I heard that story on, you know, about you and that experience, I was like, oh my God, I can see that happening. I can see Nadia blushing, because she was a pretty, you know, pretty kind of, you know, kind of tight. I wouldn't say tight, but you know, she was kind of... Um, um, you know, a little bit um, Red, very regimented, right? Russian, yeah, like a, a Russian background, very serious about the sport, exactly. very, very determined. And uh, that listen, it was a it was brutal, you guys, but it was um, it just those are the things that happen in life, right? And if you can't laugh at them, like I said, everything will resort when you talk to me, everything's going to resort back to if you can't laugh, um, you're in trouble. I mean, now with the hashtag Me Too movement, I'm glad it didn't happen this week. Uh, I'm glad that this was uh, 17 years ago. Uh, but uh, but uh, no, it was a funny moment. I'm glad you got a chance to listen to it. And then those WTA finals were my first uh, big job. I was working there, and that was uh, that was the beginning of my career. I was so frustrated because um, number one, I had excellent. I had row 11 huh? season seats there yeah. and i was so frustrated at the attendance and the lack of marketing that yeah. there was for it and i was like we have the best women in the world coming mm -hmm. here playing in a staple center and like i had friends i had tennis friends that didn't even didn't know, even know. Yeah. they were clueless yeah. i mean you didn't really yeah. or anything you know we're it's it's a big challenge that we have in the game of tennis you guys when you think about what tennis was like 30, 40 years ago to what we have to compete against now, right? There's, there's other sports, there's sports that are cheaper to attend. You can sit at home and have 175 channels to watch. You've got uh, video games. You have so many other things that we're competing with now that when you market our sport, it's a much, much bigger, bigger challenge. And the company back then who was marketing the finals uh, had no idea what tennis was. And it makes you appreciate someone like you know phil door who's the marketing director at the bmp paribas open down here in indian wells that you just can't be ordinary you've got to be an extraordinary mind you have to really figure out ways to market the sport because we have so many more obstacles that we had uh, back in the day when tennis was at its height and there weren't any other uh, exterior factors that were really competing so you really it's frustrating that's what we're trying to figure out now is especially when we get out of this pandemic is how can we get people to want to spend money? What else can they do as opposed to sitting at home and watching on a big flat screen? That's why Indian Wells, why we call it Tennis Paradise, is so fascinating now because you can go and have lunch at Wolfgang Puck's restaurant or, or sushi at Nobu, or you can hear great music and you can have great, great drinks and cocktails and meet people who you're going to be friends with for the rest of your life. And there's so many more things than just tennis now when you go to a tennis tournament. That's that is so right. true. Mm -hmm. Well, Andrew, we are to our favorite part of our interview. Yes. Um, this is Wait a, a minute. section. You guys, I'm not, take, I'm not taking off my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> this is called our rapid fire section. Yes. And this right. is where Isaac and I are going to take turns. We're going to give you a name from someone from the tennis community. It can be a player. It could be a coach. It could be a commentator. And we want just your gut reaction about that person. It could be oh, sheesh, about in trouble. Person. It could be about their personality. <laughs> it could be about their their game. It could be about an experience you have with them. Anything that comes to mind uh, to you about this particular person. So Isaac and I will do three each, and we'll let Isaac go first. All right. Well, I, I'm just gonna come out come out swinging. Um, okay. <laughs> Andrew, I want you to give us your take on the infamous Mr. Nick Kyrgios. A <laughs> uh, really good kid. Uh, behind the scenes, he's a complete teddy bear. He's a softie. He's capable of 
in-depth conversations. He's a caring kid. When he gets out on the tennis court, Dr. Jekyll becomes Mr. Hyde or Mr. Hyde becomes Dr. Jekyll. It's, uh, it's a defense mechanism from him that nobody can really explain. But I will tell you that deep down inside, he's a great guy. I'm a huge fan. Love it. Awesome. Okay. And for me, I'm going to cross over into the commentating and analysis world. Uh Uh-oh. Mr. Jim Courier. Jim Courier is the meanest, most... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Jim Courier is one of the only guys who I work with in our sport that I make deals with on a handshake. Hmm. Okay. okay, I trust him. I respect him. I'm a huge fan, and I'm proud to say that Jim Courier is a colleague. Uh, we have some business deals that we work with together, and uh, I cannot begin to tell you how impressed I am with who Jim Courier is, both professionally and personally. Well, I'm going to let you know it is on our 2021 goal list to have Jim Courier on Brothers on Tennis. Oh, you know, uh, I've never met him, guys. Sorry. <laughs> I've never met him. I'm a huge fan, but God, I've never met him. I have no idea how to get a hold of him. <laughs> so you might be hearing from us uh, sometime next year. Okay. Love it, love it. All right, right, who's next? We are going to go back to the players, and I'd like to. You guys tricked me. You guys tricked me, though. (laughs) It's all about the tricks, Andrew. All about the tricks. Um, Give us your thoughts about the new Grand Slam champion, Iga Spiatek. You know, I don't know a lot about her. Other, honest to God, I will tell you. I could lie to you and say, "Oh, I love her. I love her." Uh, I don't have anything bad to say about her. I have to tell you that I'm super, I don't know her. I've never, if I've had her on a court, I don't think that she won the match because I don't remember interviewing her, but I'm in my fifties now and there's a good chance that I have maybe have forgotten, but I will tell you that watching what she did at Roland Garros and the way she conducted herself and the way she conducted herself in the post-match interview and her behavior on court. I'm very, very impressed with her and uh, became a fan around the same time that possibly the both of you did. Right. Okay. Gotcha. All right. No, appreciate that. Good stuff. I'm going to stick with players, but I'm going to go a little old school here. All right. What are your thoughts on Martina Navratilova? Martina Navratilova, I'm proud to say, is a colleague that I've developed and established a friendship with. I have a huge amount of respect for her. Uh, She's classy. She's honest. She's open. She's a trailblazer. And I'm jealous of her that she can say things on social media that that, (laughs) that I can't, to be honest with you. I'm I'm not at that point where I'm ready to just throw in the hat quite yet. I do want to continue to work and I love what I do. If you guys can't tell already, but uh, I love her honesty. I love her open, her open mind. I love the, the trails that she's cut out for a lot of people. Uh, Martina's the real deal. And uh, I will tell you a funny story that I, uh, there's moments that happen in my career still where I can't believe that I do what I do. And even though I know Martina somewhat well, I think it was last, it might've been in Singapore last, uh, the year before last, I was sitting and having dinner at, in the player's lounge by myself. And Martina walked up and said, do you mind if I join you? And, and I said, of course not sit down. And, uh, as long as you pay for my dinner, (laughs) I said, no, of course not sit down. And I remember getting up after our dinner and walked by myself back to center court to cover my match. And I said, I can't believe that I'm living in a world where Martina Navratilova, who I grew up watching play tennis, I can't believe that she just asked me if she could join me for dinner. And uh, it's those kind of comments that I say to you guys now that my, that I actually have uh, tears welling up in my eyes right now that I feel so incredibly grateful and blessed to be able to do what I do. That's awesome. That's a beautiful thing. Seriously, man. Oh, thank you for that, Andrew. Um, I'm going to stick with the players, and I'm going to actually go to one of our more controversial players this year. Uh, give us your thoughts on Novak Djokovic. 
Listen, there's a lot to say about Novak. There's a lot of good and there's some bad to say about Novak, but you're not going to hear the bad from me for a couple of reasons. First of all, Novak has never been anything but incredibly kind and professional in every interaction that I've had with him. We have fun behind the scenes. We tell dirty jokes. We tell clean jokes. We uh, have a respect and admiration for each other. I can't tell you anything bad about Novak. Uh, I think Novak would agree with me if he was sitting here that maybe in the last year he hasn't made the greatest decisions when he's made when he's had a choice. And I think that Novak is going to learn from those decisions. Uh, but when you care about somebody and you care about a colleague, your heart breaks, right? So I, I'll right. give you some examples. A few years ago when Serena lost her temper on the court with uh, Carlos Ramos, I got sick to my stomach. Uh, it made me physically ill. I even came down with a cold, you guys. It stressed me out so much oh, to, wow. watch, to, to watch that meltdown happen with somebody who I care and have such an affection for. Yeah. In this last year, some of the decisions that Novak's made uh, have broken my heart. And you know, when I was at the US Open this summer, when Novak had his incident happen with the line judge, I was actually about 200 yards away. I was sitting uh, on Louis Armstrong. I, it was a women's match. I, I think it might have been Petra Kvitova was playing, and, and ESPN had said that they wanted me to close the match out with my post-match interview. So I didn't have to, to move down and let Renee Stubbs sit in front of the monitor. I was sitting there. I had the monitor in front of me. They had switched to the moment when Novak hit the line judge. So I was watching it in real time, but I was a couple hundred feet away. Yeah. So I wasn't on that court when it happened. Uh, it broke my heart because I know a million times over, Novak didn't do it on purpose, but at the same right. time I knew, as you probably, maybe you don't agree with me, but I knew the moment it happened that Novak had to go. Right. I knew, oh, he, yeah. was gonna be, I knew he was gonna be, and a lot of people didn't believe that. They thought it was an accident. It was an accident. It was, but, yeah. But the mm -hmm. rules are the rules, and they're very, very clear. It's black and white. When you participate in a behavior that results in somebody being injured, you're gone. You're done. You, you can't even, you're not even allowed to argue the point. You're gone. And it, that broke my heart because I knew that what Novak was going for, I knew what he was trying to achieve. And uh, he's made some mistakes, but we're all human, right? And, and we right. live in this. We live in this cancel culture, which is so bad, and everyone's just waiting for people to make mistakes so we can tear them down. It's like, no, we make mistakes, we learn from them, we move on, and I just hope that Novak learned from that from that situation. Absolutely. Awesome, nice, nice yeah. answer, I, I can appreciate that. Absolutely. So for the final one, I'm gonna go, I guess this is me going into the coaching area, potentially. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts on Richard Williams? Wow, Richard Williams and I have had many, many interesting exchanges over the last 20 years. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Richard. He is, he's a man that has, he had a vision that like I've never seen in my entire lifetime of, of being able to have a dream and be able to shape that dream and to predict the kind of things that he predicted and the life that he built for those two young girls uh, is just such a fascinating story. It's a story that is yet to be told in the in the right light. I will tell you that I am privileged to say that I read the script of the movie that Will Smith is making. Oh, okay. And that's nice. going to shed a little bit of light on, on who Richard Williams is as a man. He is uh, tough. He's crazy. He's <laughs> dedicated. He's focused. He's a lover. He's a fighter. He is... At the end of the day, Richard Williams and Orson Price uh, created Venus and Serena and a bunch of other kids who are lovely young adults and, and older adults. They did a lot of things that are really right, and I have a huge amount of respect for him. Um, he's been angry at me a couple times, and I probably <laughs> deserved it, uh, but I will tell you that he, uh, I wish him only the best in his golden years, and uh, he's a complicated individual who yeah. is absolutely brilliant that there you go i mean and 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 that typically is what you see in most individuals right. that you know are brilliant there's 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 some complexity there there are layers right. and right. um and yeah we we see that and we agree with you wholeheartedly absolute genius what he and orsine 
were able to accomplish right. and you know with and to predict and predict i mean just right. it 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 it's just it's mind blowing right. and, and right. so i we agree with you 100% and, um, and you know you guys what that does and it brings us full circle to this interview because i'm sure you probably have more people more important people to talk to today but i will tell you <laughs> that the full circle that it brings us back and i have to switch out my earbud because i'm getting that noise of so bear with me for a second yeah, um, no problem. i'm gonna put a different one in my can you guys hear me yes yeah okay. sound great mm -hmm. yeah there you are okay so you're in my other ear it brings you full circle to some of the decisions and some of the the behavior that that richard williams exhibited 15 20 years ago in the controversy that he created that there's there's people in the world who will be put off by some of the decisions that he made. And there'll be some people in the world who should open their eyes and try and figure out and understand why someone like Richard Williams said the things that he said and participated in some of the behavior that he participated in instead of judging him, perhaps trying to walk for a moment in his shoes. And maybe it'll make a little bit more sense about why he's, felt the way he's felt or why he said the things that he said. And instead of letting it anger you, maybe having a little more empathy and understanding that the mm -hmm. struggles that, that he went through as a, as a child and as a young adult and what brought him to this. Right. You know, one of the things um, that I continue to hope for is I still don't feel that he has received the recognition uh, broadly in the sport that he should for what he's done. I mean, he and, like you said, Orosin have done something in tennis that no one, no one has done. And like we said in the beginning, actually predicted it and was ridiculed right. for for those thoughts. So I, I hope that, that time has been a magnifying glass for people um, and they've been able to see and understand and to respect what this man has done. And I really, really, really want him to get his roses while he's still alive. Right. Uh, and I'm hoping that even this movie yeah. helps to bring, uh, like you said, to shed some additional light on who this man is and, right. and what remarkable length he went to did I lose to do what he did. I lost you guys. Did I get you back? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, you're here. You're, yeah. you're good to go. Can oh, you hear us OK you. still? Yeah, you know, I lost you for a good 30 seconds. So if you said anything that, that you want me to hear in the last 30 seconds, please repeat. In summary, I just said we are still hoping that he gets the recognition from the broader tennis community uh, at the level that he should uh, while he's still alive. Um, I agree with you guys. And I think, listen, there's going to be, there's a lot of haters. There's a lot of people who are jealous. There are a lot of people who are just going to be who they are and the way they are, and we'll never change them other than what we can do and why I'm so happy that you guys are. And I want everyone to know who's listening to this podcast is that I did not have uh, any idea who you were going to ask me about in this rapid fire segment. Uh, <laughs> I was not prepared at all to be asked about Richard Williams. And I will tell you that what we can do and what I am, am determined to do, and I think Venus and, and Serena and, and Oracine and Isha and Lindrea, I think they all know how I feel about Richard. And I think that what we can do is try our hardest to tell his story and to uh, hope that he does get that recognition. I do believe that by the grace of God and, and, and uh, the fact that Will Smith has taken on this role, that I think a lot, a lot more people in this world are going to find out a little bit more about who Richard Williams is. And I hope that he does see it in his lifetime. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we agree wholeheartedly. Andrew, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. It's so good to catch up with you again. And what I'd like to kind of just ask as we kind of uh, begin to wrap things up, is there anything that you want to share with the audience, anything that you're working on or anything that, you know, you just want uh, the listeners to, to, to hear before we do it, before we wrap? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I want to know how much you're paying me for this interview. <laughs> I want you to know that you can Venmo me money now because I, I identify sexually as Venmo sexual. <laughs> uh, but number three, I will tell you guys that, listen, I'm with all of you, right? We're all, we're all waiting for the storm to pass. We, we're boarding up our windows again because the hurricane's going to get bad again. And uh, 
I want us all to do what we have to do to stay safe and healthy so we can come back to tennis and nothing's been decided for 2021 yet. Uh, for the tournaments that I'm involved with, we're exploring all the options on how to bring tennis back safely. Um, but I don't, uh, I, I just don't know anything yet other than the fact that I can't wait to be back out on court. I can't wait to, to bring tennis to people who love it. It's my passion. It's my love. If I'm not watching it, I'm playing it. If I'm not playing, I'm producing. Uh, it's my dream come true job. And to be able to hang out with guys like you and talk about things so freely and openly, uh, I'm a lucky guy. And this is probably the, the, best, the best day of the week I've had. And uh, I appreciate you hanging out with me. Let me tell you what, this has probably been, we've done, I don't know how many interviews we've yeah. done, but this has probably been the easiest mm -hmm. interview we've ever done where it just felt like three friends sitting down, talking, having a conversation. And I really hope that that comes through uh, to the listeners. Andrew, thank you once again for sharing, you know, your afternoon with us. Uh, listeners, as we've stated before, the tennis season is now over. And we're trying to continue to bring you content during the very short off-season with interviews from different names and different people from the tennis community. So keep listening, and we will continue delivering content that hopefully you will enjoy uh, across the next couple of weeks. So with that, we're going to go ahead and sign off for this week. This has been your boy Bryce. And this is your boy Isaac. And we are Brothers on Tennis. Everyone stay safe.